What a joyous privilege, isn't it, to be able to come together in the way we are this evening, the first day of the week, and yet a second opportunity has been given to us to offer our heartfelt appreciation and praise to the God of heaven. Hasn't He been so good to us? He sent His Son to die for us. He made a family, a church that we can be a part of, and we can join, in fact, together as those of like precious faith and journey toward that blessed land of heaven. As you probably noted in the announcements already today, we continue to set before ourselves the thought of that personal evangelism seminar. Brother Rob Whitaker will be with us again November the 3rd and the 4th. That's a Friday and Saturday. He has asked that we'll have a total of some five sessions, two of them on Friday evening, three of them on Saturday morning. So you can please be clear in your calendar as we look forward to the reality of that event. He has held these uh, seminars all across the southeastern part of the United States and certainly very skilled and experienced in presenting them, and we look forward to him being able to be with us as well. The st sun stood still. I'm sure the very title of that lesson has already brought us to reflect on the actual event in the Bible wherein that took place, and tonight we're going to cast a bit of a spotlight on that text. So if you would keep your Bible open to Joshua chapter 10, we'll be looking in some detail at the features of that memorable event in the long ago. We'll begin with these introductory comments, though. Jesus, on one occasion, it's one of the Beatitudes in the book of Luke, He made this pronouncement, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Certainly, the greatness of that statement still rings in our ears and heart today. But you'll notice we come to the middle part of that slide. Isn't it a matter of tremendous contemplation to consider the way that God interacts with His universe? He made it, of course, and He, of course, being so much greater than it, He can direct it and control it. And you and I have record in the Word of God of a number of scenes when, in fact, He's done that in a miraculous way. The parting of the Red Sea in Exodus chapters 12 to 14. The very matter of the creation itself in Genesis 1 and 2. But, of course, tonight we also shall study about the sun standing still. We'll do that as we come to the bottom of the slide, reminding ourselves God isn't distant. It truly has been the case on occasion throughout the centuries that some have argued God in fact fashioned this universe, but He did so, and now He just stands at a distance and watches it. It's as if some have said He wound up a watch, and He's just sitting back and watching it tick until it completes. That's not a biblical view of His interaction with His universe. He's mindful of it. He cares about it. He upholds it with the word of His power. Hebrews 1 verses 2 and 3. Tonight we'll see that embodied in our discussion over the next few moments. To do that, let's first, though, as perhaps would be the wisest, let's revisit the history of a moment. That is to say, what was the scene in which this took place? And then, with that knowledge of the history, we'll look more carefully at the actual event itself. The scene begins like this. The children of Israel left, of course, the bondage of Egypt. They did that as those ten plagues were brought upon that land, and finally after the tenth when the Pharaoh was happy for them to leave, at least initially. Those Israelites, as they left, they soon crossed that dry riverbed, if you please, of the Red Sea. 
But you'll notice they proceeded to journey through the wilderness of sin, journeying toward that land of promise, the land of Canaan. They eventually arrived at the very brink of the Jordan River. We've often reflected on that in the Sunday morning Bible class. As you imagine, this people who were encamped just across the river from the land where they were supposed to inhabit. You'll notice they did cross that Jordan River at the command of God in Joshua chapter 3. And finally their feet were settled on this territory that God had promised to Abraham a half millennium earlier. As they came to this place, they of course needed to conquer and displace those peoples already living there. And so first they battled Jericho and enjoyed a tremendous victory. They marched around that city one time a day for six days and then seven times on, day, on the following day. And the walls fell when they shouted. What an incredible victory. And suddenly that city, as great and as mighty as it was, it was theirs. But rather shockingly, they then lost the next battle. They battled against a small community known as Ai, and rather amazingly, they were defeated resoundingly. When Joshua was praying unto God, God told him, Joshua, get up. There's sin in the camp. Joshua recognized the need to purge sin from the camp. And then after that was done with the death of Achan and those that were with him, we well notice they battled Ai again, and this time Israel won. God was with them again, and the victory was theirs. Not surprisingly, that then brings us to next victories in that land of Canaan. You may notice I've called your attention then to the Gibeonites. Chapter number 9, in fact, is all about the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua. Here was a people who, in fact, deceived Joshua and the people of Israel. God had told Israel that they were to defeat those people living in that locality. You don't allow them to survive. You don't permit them to leave. And so this people deceived Joshua. They dressed up in old clothes and they brought moldy bread with them. And they came and said, We have traveled from a very far distance, but we've heard about the greatness of this people and that God is with you. And we want you to sign an agreement. Join in a treaty with us that you will in fact have peace with us. Joshua chapter 9 directly tells us, Israel did not consult God on this. They signed the treaty with them, believing that they were from a far distance. But then three days later, they learned they weren't from a far distance at all. They were from nearby. But because they had signed the treaty and given the very nature of the Word of God with regard to it, they were unwilling to go back on it. But they did make those people, the Gibeonites, become hewers of wood and drawers of water. But that will set the stage for the issues of chapter 10. Because the time came that there were five Amorite kings, which in fact did not like the fact that Gibeon signed a treaty with Israel. And so those five kings proceeded to make war against Gibeon. When they did that, the Gibeonites, they were sorely outnumbered. But they then sent to Joshua, You agreed to help us, and we need your help now. Come and help us battle against these Amorites. And so... Being true to his word, Joshua sent the armies of Israel and they came and battled against these Amorites protecting the Gibeonites. As all of that happens, we come near the bottom of the slide and God makes this statement to Joshua. 
I'm reading in Joshua 10, verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. God was speaking about those Amorites. Joshua, don't be afraid. I have given them to you. There's not a one of them going to be able to stand before you. As mighty, as great as those kings, the Amorite kings were. That brings us to near the bottom of that slide. The promise that God made. And it also leads us directly to the next one. At this point, as you proceed to appreciate what's next, God fought on behalf of Israel. Listen to the resounding strength of this passage. Beginning in verse number 9 in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them all along the way that goeth up to Beth Haran and smote them to Azekah and to Makeda. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Haran that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Pausing at that point, you'll notice God cast down stones from heaven against these Amorite kings and their armies, causing great destruction and much defeat before the people of God, before the people of Israel. At that point, may I ask you to notice... In Job chapter 38, verse 23, we are told in that passage, the God of heaven stores up stones and will cast them down toward those people who are the enemies of His people. Is this an incident in which that occurred? It certainly appears to have been. Not only that, you notice that as Joshua then engaged these Amorites in battle, they fought for the duration of a day. But as the sun began to go down... The victory wasn't yet complete. Joshua recognized there was more to be done in terms of defeating these Amorites, but yet the sun was about to go down. It's at that point a tremendous prayer was uttered. In verse number 12, this is the reading. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in a... And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. As you can see on that slide, as the sun began to go down that day, perhaps fearful that those people who did survive would be able to hide under the cover of darkness, perhaps fearing that they might organize themselves again and come to fight again against either Gibeon or Israel, Joshua made this remarkable prayer. He prayed for a lengthening of the day, that the sun would stand still and the moon as well. And you'll notice in verses 13 and 14, his prayer was answered in the way he asked it. God lengthening the day. 
a fantastic event to be sure, an almost amazing matter that crosses your mind and mine. And yet as we close that slide, you'll notice the chapter goes on to say that Israel enjoyed a great victory. The territory of those five kings now belonged to Israel. This was a means whereby God used this remarkable event in such a way that Israel now occupied a much greater territory, territory which included Jerusalem, by the way. And with that, let's close the slide. What a unique day in the history of the, of the world. Never been a day like it before it or any day since. What might be some lessons or observations we might glean as we reflect on the events we've just studied? Observation number one. Wouldn't it be fair to comment about this? Joshua had an interesting thought in mind, a desire to complete that task that had been begun on this occasion. Would you also be impressed with the following observation? Joshua, remember it says, had marched all night long. And yet here this next day, rather than perhaps slumbering and perhaps finding the necessity of sleep, he not only engaged in battle but prayed for a lengthening of the day. Aren't you impressed by that? Maybe you and I would have wanted to go have a nap after marching all night and fighting all day. But Joshua prayed earnestly for a lengthening of that day that he might in fact complete a task on behalf of God that had been started. Let's add some details to that in the following way. Isn't it interesting to reflect from the Word of God on how that our God is one who has been so masterful at completing the tasks that He has begun. The days of creation in, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Day 1 was light and day 2 was a firmament and day number 3 of course had to do with the seas being gathered, the dry land appearing and plant life appearing as well. Day 4 had to do with the sun, the moon, the stars, the various celestial objects. Day five was the life both in the waters and in the atmosphere. Day six, land-dwelling creatures of a whole host of varieties. Did you notice, though, that as God marched one by one through those days, bringing those things into the reality of existence, we notice in chapter 2, verse 1, "...thus the host was completed." God finished what He started to do. The universe was not in its final state that was pleasing to Him until day six was done. There the man and the woman had both been created. All the things prior to that had been put in place. And everything was as God intended it to be. And so He rested that day, that day seven. That completion maybe is also seen in this regard. I've asked you to contemplate in John 19.30. Isn't it fascinating that in Genesis 3.15, God made a great prophetical statement. He promised to the serpent in very dramatic and vivid and direct language, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Now you and I wait with expectation through the reading of the Old Testament and, and 4,000 years pass. But God had never forgotten that promise and He hadn't forgotten the reality if that was going to be coming into existence by virtue of it. The Christ child was born 
And so it was that that plan of redemption was ultimately put in place. God completed the task. It took 4,000 years to do it. But it was on His timetable and He finished it. No wonder Jesus cried on the cross, It is finished! The great plan that God had orchestrated had now been executed. All the pieces were put in place. Maybe one final observation in 1 Corinthians 13.10. Speaking one more time of our God, you and I remember that the New Testament, for example, as well, of course, as the Old, it had been written by individuals and it took a long time to complete it. From the time Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament until John the Revelator completed the Revelation, 1,600 years would elapse. 1,600 years would pass. Kingdoms would rise and fall. Monarchs and other great officials would rise and they would, run, and they would wane. But through it all, God was superintending the writing of the greatest document known to man, the only one that can save the souls of people, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that went with it is now completed. No wonder Paul was able to say in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, when that which is perfect is come. May I suggest that to which he referred, the thing that's perfect, meaning it's complete, it's entire, no missing pieces, parts, or elements at all. It's complete. On this occasion, Joshua had also a desire, these who have... Warred against Gibeon. It was his desire to complete that effort, to draw it to conclusion, to bring it to closure. Maybe it's in light of that. You and I too can appreciate how good a thing it is in most instances when we in nobility complete those tasks, those chores, those, those jobs that we have undertaken. When it comes to things of God, isn't that a wonderful attribute? In Ecclesiastes 9, verse number 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 11, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, painted this picture to them. A year ago you began with promise, but you haven't yet finished it. And so Paul urged them, complete now what you promised to do a year earlier. That was that gift for those poor saints at Jerusalem. Paul admonished those Corinthian brethren to complete the task they had begun. We today, of course, with excitement, look forward to carrying with dutifulness that work that we've begun in the name of God. Perhaps we learn at least that principle as we reflect on this interesting scene of the, st of the sun standing still. What about a second observation, however? This one, I've put two on this slide because I believe as we discuss each one of them, we shall find a rather impressive consideration. First of all, in number two, at this point, wouldn't you perhaps be in a position to reflect on the absolute incredible prayer that Joshua prayed? Here is a man with, again, the troops of God engaged in battle. Would it occur to you or to me to just suddenly as the sun nears the time of going down, among all things to pray for, to pray, God, stand the sun still for a while that I can continue this battle? Isn't that a remarkable prayer? Who would think to pray that? The nature of that incredible feature 
it seems to me is worthy of at least these, these comments. The incredible nature of that prayer perhaps was prompted by this. It seems likely that maybe some indication had been given by God to Joshua that such a thing as this was not only possible, but something for which you should earnestly pray. We learn, for instance, in Zechariah 14, as well as in Ezekiel chapter 37, that God on occasion did give inclination to individuals and urge them to pray for it. Maybe that's what occurred here. But at the very least, we should be impressed with the courage and the boldness that Joshua had to carry out a prayer like this. To pray that things in the heavens would be disrupted so that the work of God might be completed. What boldness there was in Joshua's prayer. What incredible boldness and courage there was. In fact, aren't you and I admonished that we too should be bold in our prayers? I suspect that one thing that may be very less than ideal in your prayer life and mine, we aren't bold enough. We pray the same kinds of things that we've always heard prayed and that we have perhaps been in the presence of others while they prayed it. How bold are you and I? Do you really believe and do I really believe that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much? Joshua was bold. In Hebrews 4.16, written to you and me, it says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are we bold enough? When we perceive and sense that things with regard to the working of God are needful, are we bold enough in praying that it shall come to pass? Praying that we might be a part of the solution that brings that work about? Joshua was bold. But not only there, look at these examples. In Ephesians 3 verse 12, in the midst of that little Ephesian letter, Paul directly said that we as Christians have access and boldness to God. Now that's a promise. May I again ask, are we bold enough? We all recognize so wonderfully that this world is in such desperate need of the gospel. It's the only solution to its problems. Not only for our country, but for every country on the whole globe. And yet, are we bold enough in praying that the gospel will be sent to these places? That it will appear in these places? That individuals will respond to it? That our government will respond to it? May we with Christian power recognize the boldness that's promised to us. And may we pray with that boldness and courage. In 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything in His name, He heareth us. That's amazing. Might we add one more thing to that? We are promised in James chapter 1 that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So much so that James directly says, Let not that man think that he will receive anything of the Lord. May we with confidence recognize we have petition to the almighty, awesome God of heaven and that no thing is too great for Him. May we like Joshua be bold and courageous. And so that leads us to point number three. You'll notice 
For what did Joshua pray? In light of the victory that he wished for the armies of Israel to understand, why couldn't Joshua have prayed, God, why not instantly kill all of them with these hailstones that you're sending? Why not instantly take their lives so that we can perhaps go back home and enjoy the pleasantness and the circumstances of the moment? Joshua didn't pray for that. He prayed for a lengthening of the day that the armies might continue that battle. He prayed, in essence, for what would involve himself and the troops in greater fighting. He prayed for what would involve himself and them in the accomplishment of the work of God. Isn't that amazing? He didn't pray for an immediate miracle that he would have no part in. He prayed for a miracle that would require his participation. I've developed that point like this. It seems to me that's significant that Joshua prayed it that way. Maybe he had a keen understanding that just like Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 6 through 8, we are fellow laborers with God. We are fellow workers. We are His husbandry. That being said, isn't that fascinating to think about that in terms of applying it today? We, of course, are the people of God in that we are members of the body of Christ. We've been purchased with Christ's blood, and we joyously recognize the name Christian that we wear. But when we pray, do we merely pray for God to do everything? Our prayers directed in such a way we petition Him to carry it all out? Or like Joshua, do we pray, God, open the door such that I can contribute and help bring about that effort, that work, that chore? teaching the lost, the gospel. We're so honored and thankful that we can send missionaries and we can be a part in helping them to carry out the work of the Lord, perhaps in distant places. But what about my part and yours on a daily basis? Setting forth that example, do we pray, God, open a door for me that I might set an example or teach something, say something that might drop a nugget of truth into the life of somebody else? that might open either now or sometime soon an opportunity that they might want to know more about the gospel. Joshua prayed that he might have a part in this. As the sun would be lengthened or stayed in his position, that's a challenging prayer. It really is. You'll notice one last thing on that slide. Paul seemingly felt the same way. In Romans 10, for example, verses 1 to 3, and we shall couple it in just a moment with Romans 1, verses 14 to 16. But on those occasions, remember, Paul was so urgent in light of helping others come to know the truth. Although he was the gospel for the Gentiles, or rather the, the one, the prophet for them, he said it like this in Romans 10. He said, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And so Paul prayed, I want them to be saved. I want them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that is of Him. So Paul, what did you do about this? To the Jew, I became as a Jew, that I might by all means win some Jews. 
He said that now admittedly in 1 Corinthians 9. But as we revisit Romans 1, what did you do to the church in Rome, Paul, to help bring this about? He said, I'm debtor to preach the gospel. I'm ready to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. So he, in fact, himself aided to answer that prayer. Do you and I do that too? Are we happy to allow God to use us as instruments to bring about His will? Joshua's prayer is an exhibit A of an opportunity, a prayer, a lesson that perhaps motivates us in that direction. What about a fourth observation? In addition to these... Maybe this was one aspect we expected to consider, and certainly the time has come. What about the impressive control that this passage puts before us in light of God's control over His universe? Let's begin the development like this. Joshua was somewhat specific in verse number 10. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse number 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And He said in the sight of all Israel, stand, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon. First of all, Gibeon was now the very place wherein this battle was occurring. These Amorite kings had come and challenged the Gibeonites. And so Gibeon was the place where this matter was occurring. Apparently Joshua was located at a place where in the distance when he saw the sun, it looked as if it hanged over Gibeon. That was the direction in which it appeared. And so it was that here we've arrived apparently late in the day. The sun was low in the sky. Gibeon appeared to be right beneath it. But not only that, the moon was also visible at this time. And maybe you and I have often seen those occasions when the moon and the sun were both visible here, the moon appeared over the valley of Ajalon. Geographically, that appears to have been a rather notable distance in the sky away. And so we had the sun in one location, the moon in another, over that valley of Ajalon. With that observation made, you'll notice that Joshua prayed a very specific prayer. Sun, stand thou still. You and I are very well aware, at least with current scientific knowledge, about the features of the solar system. How that as the sun spins on its axis and does so in a period of time of about 24 hours, that of course that means the sun appears to move across the sky. And so too, of course, does the moon. And yet here, Joshua prayed, "'Sun, stand thou still.'" The actual Hebrew word perhaps has an interesting meaning. The word literally means to be silent. It literally means to be, be bereft of influence. So in essence, Joshua prayed for the sun to be silent. He prayed for its power, its influence, at least for a time, to be withheld and withdrawn. You'll notice on that slide, and in the next verse... It says, and the sun stood still. Its influence in that regard was withdrawn, and the moon stayed. Later in that verse and the next, it highlights for about a whole day this continued this way. 
as fascinating, as intriguing as that sounds, you and I know, of course, the force due to gravity that links the sun to the, to the earth. We appreciate that that element of this, of course, was maintained. The earth didn't fly off and no longer orbit the sun. But the earth's spin on its axis, the consideration whereby that was apparently withdrawn, that apparently was withheld, and that degree of that power was taken. And so it was that here the sun appeared to stay in position. Can you imagine the shocking an impressive feature of this. The enemy troops perhaps thought it's soon going to be dark and we'll be able to hide from these Israelites. And with each passing moment, the sun wasn't going down any further. Don't you suppose they must have been shocked, amazed, and not just for a few minutes? There have been those infidels through the ages who've wondered, was this some kind of optical illusion? Was it a mirage in some way whereby it only appeared to happen? No, that's not what it was. The text says, not just for a few minutes, not just for a half hour, this continued for a whole day. You'll notice as you come near the bottom of that slide, the physics then involved in this reminds us our God's in control of this universe. Just as surely as He could bring this about, we know there's coming a time when He's going to close the whole thing down. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Notice He made mention of the heavens. God's in control of them. The Hebrew writer says there's coming a moment in Hebrews 1 verses 11 through 13 when he's going to roll it up like, a, like an old garment. You and I fold up a cloth and lay it on a shelf. God's going to do that to the heavens one day. Maybe as you and I close that slide, it prompts us with this question. It seems as though later in the Bible there are allusions back to this event. In Habakkuk 3, verse number 11, the minor prophet Habakkuk, God speaking through him, hearkened their attention back to this day when there was a time when God stayed the sun and the moon from the perspective of earth. Perhaps it's true that even Zechariah alludes to it in Zechariah 14. All of that perhaps led me to wonder about this. If it's true that the day was lengthened that way, Shouldn't there be some references or maybe even some additional writings from other countries in the world that might at least give some record to it? For after all, if the day was long upon the Amorites and on the Israelites, was it long for the Chinese people that day? Sure it would have been. Was it long for the people living in Germany? Sure it would have been. What about for those living in other parts of the world? Perhaps we can each be impressed. There are writings among the Chinese writings that in the days of Emperor Yeo, there was an exceedingly unusual and long day. And oddly enough, the timing of the reign of Emperor Yeo coincided exactly with the days of Joshua. What about the writings of Herodotus? 
Herodotus was a rather famous historian in the ancient time, and he not only made record about the events and matters of the Greek society, but his access to ancient Egyptian writings was so impressive. And in his writings, he makes absolute and very clear record that in their writings, there is mention of a very long day. An unusual day, in fact, incredibly long by standards of normality. And one more time, the timing matches it up with the days of Joshua. Look at yet a third one. The Mexican people. Now remember, they're on the other side of the world from where Jerusalem is. And yet even in the writings of Mexican people, there's mention of an exceedingly long day. Amazingly enough, you may even notice... They gave it in terms of a time frame, a name. It occurred in the year of seven rabbits. But one more time, by comparing the dates and times, that corresponds to the very time when Joshua lived on earth. Let's try one more. What about the various peoples who lived in South America? Remember, they're on the other side of the world now from the events of Jerusalem. But yet, as you look in the writings of the Aztec nation and the writings of the Peruvian nation, you find one more time a reference to, and I quote, a day of twice length. Aren't you impressed that there are secular writings that seemingly are in perfect harmony and perfect consistency with the very long day of Joshua chapter 10? One more time, even the Babylonian peoples make mention of it. Now, they live somewhat east, of course, of, of, of the days of, of Jerusalem, but even they make reference to this day of twice length. Let's close that slide like this. If the God that we serve and the God that we worship is able to affect things in a celestial way like this, isn't it true that He would have the power to take care of matters in your life or mine? that things in His Word and by His providential capability, He can handle anything that you and I might bring before Him. Job said it like this in Job 42.2, There is no thought that can be withholden from Him. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 19.26, With God all things are possible. To that might we add Psalm 55, 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. In Psalm 61, 4, that same writer made a statement like, I will trust in Him, and I will hide in the covert of His wings. In Psalm 91, verses 2, 3, and 4, there the writer pointed out that the great God of heaven is mindful and aware of the problems and struggles and issues that you and I face, and He is more than willing to offer assistance and aid. In 1 Peter 5, verse 7, in the New Testament, Peter said, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. God isn't distant. Just like He was in the days of Joshua, He wants to be the God who serves in a very personal and direct way, you and me. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Our study tonight so far has brought us to a point of conclusion. The sun stood still. You and I realize a great miracle took place on that day. And notice it didn't just last for a few moments. This miracle lasted for a day. And as it did, Joshua and the armies of Israel, in fact, were able to enjoy victory over those Amorites. And they conquered that land and they dwelled in that place. As a part of all of that, we've seen what a great testimony this is to the God of this universe, to the God, in fact, of all things. We've seen several observations along the way. Perhaps a very brief listing you can well see on that slide. The desire to complete that task on behalf of God. The circumstances surrounding that amazing prayer that Joshua uttered and the part that he and Israel had to play in its fulfillment. Lastly, God's great control of His universe and how that even secular records testify that this really happened. People in Egypt, the Aztec Indians and others, and their writings are hints and records that this really happened. I hope we'll each be continually amazed by the Word of God. Tonight, of course, the gospel message brings us to a moment of invitation. What about your life and mine? Are you dwelling safely within the confines of the hands of the Heavenly Father? Are you a faithful child of His? If you and I are, may we with confidence and boldness live like that until breath in these lungs of ours is no more. But if all isn't well with you tonight and your soul is separated from God by sin, Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, why don't you come to God? As an alien sinner, repent of your sins upon your belief in Him, confess His name and be baptized. If you have become a Christian and have known the power and the glory available from God to you, but you have perhaps forsaken it, begun to walk in a different way, with a different focus, and a different objective. Why not come back to your first love tonight? After a lesson like this, don't we want to faithfully serve a God who can make the sun stand still? If we could help you tonight by praying to God upon your repentance and confession of sin known publicly, we'd be happy to do that. A song of encouragement has been selected. If at this time we can offer assistance, we'd be happy to do it and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>